the thing that progressives do that I've never seen in all these years we've talked about, never seen a political movement do, is assign people to the other side. Yeah. You, what Clinton did, what anybody running for president, uh, Nixon did it. You could see examples of all of them when they talked, like especially when they started doing town halls, which was a great addition to Yeah. It. They would say, somebody would stand up and say, I, I, um, I don't want to vote for you because I'm a Democrat and because I think you're, you know, whatever. And they go, okay, tell me, what does that mean to you being a Democrat? Yeah. Well, uh, the economy is very important to me and healthcare. And I want people to be taken care of when they're older, sick. And he goes, I, I'm afraid to tell you, but you're a Republican. That's what, yeah. that's what, that's what people do is like, come here. I've got, I've got the same. I'm like you. You're like me more than you understand. Now, and they they hedge it. They go like, now I'm not. In, I don't. I don't agree with my opponent's bill sure. for health care, but I have the same concern as you do about health care. I have the same values you do. We're like you should vote for me. But what progressives do is they you you actually say to them, I'm a progressive. Yeah. And they go, really? Prove it. Well, I'm for gay marriage. We mean gay. What do you mean marriage? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You are a Trump. They like tell yeah. other people that they belong to Trump. They give him, yeah. they push people away. They pushed because, everyone to him. Because the goal is not actually to win and to change the country, which is a ugly, difficult, to really change the country is a gray, difficult, boring, bureaucratic, uh, unsatisfying, slow business. And people want to be able to make it happen like this. I can, this, I can just, and they're not trying to make something happen. They're just trying to feel, they're trying to show what yeah. they think and perform what they are and, and just get it. And they're addicted. It's a sickness. I feel sorry for them. I don't hate people like this. It's just that they're sick. They can't stop this thing. This does, if this doesn't bark, they start feeling sick inside. So if it's not barking, they bark at it. So that'll bark back. And that's on both sides. Yeah. That's everybody on the Trump side. That's everybody on the on the progressive side. Yeah. It's sick. That voice sounds familiar. It's because it was stand-up comedian and noted masturbatory exhibitionist Louis C.K. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 320 Club podcast. Why is it called the 320 Club? Well, 420 was already taken, and happy hour is happening somewhere else. No, we didn't get Louis on our podcast. We need... A lot more people to listen to our show for that to happen. This is an excerpt taken from Matt and Shane's secret podcast where stand-up comedian Shane Gillis invited Louie to talk about all of the U.S. presidents from Washington to Trump. It's a four-part episode that's about five hours in total length and it's totally binge-worthy. To give a quick summary, they evaluate each president not necessarily on their policies as political figures, but on their character as flawed human beings. It's incredible how knowledgeable both Shane and Louis are on each of these presidents while simultaneously bringing out the entertainment value. I'll also note that the excerpt you just heard might seem very sympathetic to Trump by virtue of talking about progressives in a negative light. However, these guys are very unkind to Trump as a human being and they do it in the right way. But you have to go and listen to the podcast to understand it. So the link is in the description. Bit of a long intro, but bear with me. So why did I put in this clip? For steadfast listeners of the podcast, you may have noticed that the last episode we published kind of ended on a bit of a cliffhanger, and a lot of it had to do with how our own government has handled populist opposition. Well, this episode is the direct follow-up and tries to address some of the 
opportunities available to the Canadian people in order to help foster good government. I hope you enjoy. It's interesting because you think about it, if the if the if Maslow's hierarchy of needs is food, shelter, clothing, right? And right now we're at six point seven percent inflation. Yeah, most young people can never even dream of owning a house mm-hmm. uh, because they just simply can't create. And the rents are getting so high that even if you're trying to save up, you, you're on a treadmill for life. You can't actually save enough to put the down payment on a house that you can't afford to live in anyway. So there goes two of three Maslow's you know, needs right away, right? And clothing Meat prices are, are skyrocketing. Growth, like you know, dairy, gas, everything, gas right? And fuel. Gas. Right. So maybe it's not the best time to invoke your carbon tax and slap them. You know, people are already getting punched in the stomach. Here's a punch in the face. You know, so timing and decision is everything. So I think I think the the level of discontent is like you're rang on there, whiskey. It's the it's the social mega movements that have occurred, you know, as a result of pandemic or whatever. But when you start attacking that really basic hierarchy of needs, and two of the three of them are under siege right now, in a way, like people are really upset and worried, right? And and when people get worried and anxious, they start making bad decisions. <laughs> so in my mind is is that in these fluctuations, what is the opportunity? So what is the opportunity for change? Because if they're unstable, is now yeah. the pattern is the pattern's disrupting, right? So people are we're not taking away, we're people are unstable. What is the opportunity? I don't know. I mean, the opportunity, the opportunity is to, I mean, obviously stop spending money you don't have, right? You know, that's the first thing. Uh, but, uh, you know, they can't. They've committed to a plan and they're now, they're now a prisoner of it. They're a prisoner of their own agenda. So they can't stop spending, um, you know, and so there's, I don't know how that's going to get fixed. Inflation only usually gets fixed by raising interest rates. Well, they're going to raise them because the banks have had enough. So they're going to raise the interest rates probably at least two more times this year. But of course, what that happens is then it kicks people out of their homes, right? Because some people, those people that are trapped in variable rate mortgages uh, will have face two problems. One, they'll either be uh, mortgaged out of their own house, which is a disaster. Or two, when it comes time to renew their mortgages, they'll be forced into another variable rate mortgage because the banks are losing money right now with all the, all the fixed rate mortgage people. Um, and also, if you try to switch lenders, right, you have to hit a higher threshold of trust in order to renew a mortgage with a different lender. And if you are barely making your payments on your current home, you won't hit the threshold of trust required to, to switch lenders and renegotiate your mortgage with another institution. So you'll be trapped. You're trapped in a bad marriage, so to speak, or a bad relationship that you can't get out of. So, I mean, it's like, like it's a bit of a perfect storm for, for people's lives. Never mind people who lost their jobs as a result of the pandemic or, you know, got, all the people got the nasty uh, letter in the mail saying they have to get part of their CERB back because it's all over now. Uh, all those things. Like it's, you know, this is a bit of a maelstrom of, and like I said, you're attacking the basic things, right? Which is really, really problematic. I don't know if there's opportunity. Uh, I mean, it's a I bit of a long way to answer. I would say there is. I mean, when you, when you talk about hyper, when you talk about hyperinflation and the raise, raising of costs and tr- the traditional means of things are now going up, that means if the traditional ones are going up and luxury goods now, if you think the basic ones are going up, the luxury things, yeah. things that would be perceived as luxury are essentially insulated from these changes, right? because there's usually a higher margin things like renewables which typically were like the posh and and luxury goods now become in shooting range you say well we're going to take a carbon tax to bring it this down to enhance that gap i I don't think they're going to probably do that 
I would say they're, they're going to leave it right. They're, the pain is going to be felt right here. These ones will be now economically viable, and these will see a surge because, one, these aren't being produced enough. These ones still are. And if we look at cars as an example, luxury cars are more being more produced more reliably because they have those higher margins and they're more incentivized to do so. So I say well, also, too, they t- yeah. sorry, I was going to say, but they also, they tend to be designed to survive, right? Like most products are designed to fail now arbitrarily, right? So if you, but if you, you get what you literally get what you pay for now. So if you buy yeah. a luxury item, there's a good chance it'll survive 20 years. You buy a standard item, it'll last two years, maybe, you know? So I think that because people they want are you to come back to, and buy another product. Absolutely. They want, yeah, absolutely. They, Absolutely. So not, I know for some, uh, yeah. in some cases, I'll buy a luxury item just because I know it's going to last. Uh, again, there's still, there's, there, you know, there's Poisson's theory too involved here. But so, but uh, I would say that overall, like there's individual things. Pardon me? Did I break, did I break rocks? I feel like you guys are going to start leaving me behind here. <laughs> 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 I can see that. You know, you know, I said like think outside the box, come back in the box. <laughs> he, he mentioned a French philosopher. That was it. You were off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Keep going, whiskey. You're on. A, you're on to something. Keep going. So, so, so I, I, I think that the opportunity for renewals here, right? So it's not like we had like the, the dealerships have a hundred vehicles in the lot, and we're going to impose uh, a new uh, a new um, electric vehicle only or hydrogen power vehicle only mentality on. And the the dealership be like, "Well, we have all these vehicles." Well, if you go there, there there's no vehicles. <laughs> there, there's, no, there's the testers, and there's ones for delivery. That's it. <laughs> there's a there's a wait list, like months long wait list. For, yeah, the, the electric uh, vehicle strategy in this country is terrible, right? So you can get a five thousand dollar grant. That's not going to buy you anything in electric vehicle land these days. Um, and they're suggesting, oh, they'll put they're going to put fifty thousand charging stations into Canada. Okay, well that might satisfy Toronto. Right, I don't think it's going to satisfy much else. Oh, and by the way, uh, batteries don't work so well in extreme cold, as we've discovered. Right, so you only get two thirds of the range on an electric vehicle if you live like in Cold Lake or Red Deer or some other back end of the Great White North, as opposed again to downtown Toronto. Think about it. Like in an average condominium, there could be six to eight hundred vehicles in a condominium. How long are you going to wait to charge your vehicle? Uh, oh, and on top of that, where's all the electricity coming from? Coal burning plants that are providing the electrical. Don't say grid all. You being hyperbolic. Right? No, you're not. Hyperbolic. Hey, this is this is a country whose major cities have brownouts when everybody turns their air conditioning on. So you're telling me that everyone's going to plug their car in and nothing bad is going to happen ever, ever. <laughs> no, 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 don't, don't divert because I there called is, you up being oh, hyperbolic. No. <laughs> you know, electric cars will get here, but let's be honest, there's about 30 to 40 years of infrastructure that has to get built in order for it to be sustainable, right? We're, we're like in the bi, you know, the pre-biplane stage of electric vehicles here. Uh, and uh, I mean, think about, think about how much highway there is in this country. We're the second largest geographic landmass in the world, right? So you've got the highway system, the, the railway system, like look how long it took to build this, how much money was required, how many governments we went through to get them done. And now you're going to put an electrification of vehicle system in as well. That's decades. That's decades of work. And that's well, assuming that everybody agrees. It's coming. And it's, it's the right way forward. But the thing is, is, yeah, you're right. It's like, I'm not saying don't do it. I'm saying you just, you got to be able to have both hands on the steering wheel while you're also trying to do these other projects. You know? 
Here's a like crazy. The, there's, 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 actually, there's, I'll, I'll throw it out there. The Toyota Mariah runs on hydrogen, and they have a hydrogen fuel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, I so, would and be Cumberland Canada has a hydrogen fuel strategy. So, like these things, like people are on the battery battery paradigm. My stocks are all in hydrogen stocks. So, like, yeah. yeah. No, what you're about right. nuclear? Uh, <laughs> no, well, the electrolyzers come from you know there's different ways to electrolyze things, um, and there's and there and like you can burn hydrogen too, which is a, a nasty way to go yeah. about it. And if you read all the bad all the bad articles against hydrogen, that's because they, they they focus on uh, ICE or internal combustion engines. And I think uh, a few of the major manufacturers trying try to jury rig their technologies in order to run hydrogen or burn hydrogen. But the, the value of the uh, of uh, hydrogen technology is is that we can take that surplus energy. So you, you say, well, we, when we plug in air conditioner at a certain point that these um, uh, um, we we plug in air conditioners, you know, we have brownouts. Well, they're already using hydrogen te- hydrogen uh, technology and hydrogen fuel cells to power electrolyzers on peak demand. So the value, the, the key point is that. We have we have capacity within our, our existing infrastructure to generate electric electricity, okay, and they they perform optimally when they're on full on. So instead of powering these things down, powering them up, uh, we power them full bore all the time. So at night, when we're not running air, air conditioners, we power electrolyzers. Those electrolyzers store hydrogen, and then when we need actual power to go into back into the grid, we now use hydrogen fuel cells to to meet those demands. And we can actually balance the grid yeah, using yeah. these technologies. Yeah. Challenging Canada is a, a good portion of the transmission process for electricity is above ground. And every winter storm knocks a bunch of it out, right? You only have to go onto a hydro website to see how many hours it's going to take to restore power in dozens or hundreds of communities across the country every time we have a major storm. You know, And never mind, too, the environmental effects of extreme weather on the infrastructure that was designed in countries that have much far more temperate climates like we'll get there i'm not suggesting we won't get there uh but it's going to be really expensive for us to get there and we don't have the population or the gdp to enact it right now it's going to take a long drawn out time in in my analysis to put all that stuff in place and again like i'm interested in the idea that potentially like you've mentioned which is we may find ourselves like leapfrogging it you know like in countries that went from landline straight to cell phones they didn't really bother with all the crap in between because they just took the opportunity to jump technology Mm -hmm. steps we may find ourselves doing the same thing so if somebody comes up with a hydrogen or liquid oxygen type vehicle that produces the same effect and is way cleaner because obviously it just produces steam and there's no electricity requirement. You don't have to stick a bunch of hub and infrastructure in place and it's cheaper. We might have an opportunity. If there's your opportunity, we may have an opportunity to leapfrog uh, technology altogether and just leave electrical behind and go to the next thing, whatever whatever the next thing looks like. And like the, uh, the Toyota Mirai has been tested down to minus 40. So like these things exist. Yeah, and like go. the infrastructure, yeah, and that's it. everybody has water to their house already. So the infrastructure is now taking uh, time. <laughs> Most people in this country do. Not everybody. <laughs> There's some reserves out there. They're pretty sketchy. Yeah. No, I actually. Well, they all have water, and my, my a lot of my 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 doctoral friends are are talking about uh, marketing water as a resource. But the point is, there's doesn't have to be clean water. So when we talk about water as as the ability to, to run things, um, these things start storing their own energy. Now, if you think about it, if a solar plant in a remote area having the ability to produce their own energy and store it, 
my being valuable because my 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 actually my master's project was that um you know building uh electrical just electric. admit it you just you just want to you just want to pee in your own gas tank you admit it <laughs> i could do it we can run <laughs> urea wait that's an additive for diesel but anyways yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, we need some stabilizer in there for that too. <laughs> but no sorry i'll get off my soapbox it's <laughs> a good soapbox i think it's a good point like i mean you know you're right people are so fixated on electric cars and the battery and, and of course lithium believe everybody talk about lithium mining and how devastating it is to the environment to when plus it's lost a lot of child labor too which apparently we don't see you know when we're driving our nice expensive teslas but you might you know you might be right like maybe there's an opportunity there right like just yeah, that, I got to take a break and keep my mouth shut for a while. <laughs> <laughs> so if Rocks was paying attention, he'd be saying, well, what about all the existing trucks out there and the, and the truck drivers and the existing infrastructure? How would you transition to that? Well, the logical question is, there's uh, actually something called diesel reformers. And diesel reformers can actually make dirty hydrogen on the fly to supply uh, yeah. as a backup. Uh, so the, 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 these things already exist. Hyzon Motors, uh, Ballard Power... Like, like they're all there, buddy. It's now just, yeah. and you're saying, well, no one's run buses. Well, actually, Whistler's already run buses. Vancouver's also run hydrogen powered buses. The technology exists. Um, we just have to put put up fuel stations for it. Government Canada already has a hydrogen strategy. It's now <coughs> wait for it to arrive, and we'll be just be willing to invest. The technology is proven, and as of the news this morning, uh, they came up with a new tank storage technology that allows to reduce weights so they can build airplanes with this technology and they can, uh, they can fly further and farther on, on uh, lower weight to airplanes. This still goes back to the original point though. It's like, this is, I'm going to play Ian Malcolm here for a second. It's not about what you can do. It's about what you should do. Right? Like, and that was the original question that Dr. Green proposed was, we got all these, all this ability. Like we're, we're this investment is great. I think it's the right way forward. But with everything else that's going on, yeah. is it the right the thing, thing to, that to be well, doing? Well, well, well I, I'm going to add a segue. I'm going to add a segue. If you're willing to give up a certain amount of freedom for a universal strategy, would you? It depends that's on the strategy. Yeah. I mean, we know that really the challenge for us is actually is productivity, right? We we're something like 121st on the list of you know in terms of productivity, you know, 127th of what the United States puts out, and that's in like real work outputs per hour of labor. And for whatever reason, Canada's productivity rates are abysmally low uh, in the developed world. Like in the OECD, they did a they did a report just last year and they looked at it, and we were we we performed terribly. And when your productivity in your country is low, you can't meet those goals. So even if you have a, a viable strategy or even a, a viable vision or an honorable vision, you just can't get there from here. Not because you physically can't, you just don't have the, the, like the horsepower, so to speak, to get there. Which is you know why things like immigration are so important because the idea is being that you bring more people in, you get more horsepower, you, know, you increase the productivity in the country. It was even mentioned in a recent budget, uh, they talked about productivity and looking for ways to increase it. But the business leadership, this is one of the things that they've been sort of honed in on and, and really sort of are talked about is that in order to increase productivity, as, as other countries have shown, you have to create the tools to enable it. And Canada is notoriously bad at creating the tools to enable productivity. And as a result, you know, we're falling behind in a lot of places where we shouldn't be. 
And then, of course, the real bad runoff is that you lose your best talent because your talent decides to go elsewhere where the productivity can be enabled. And so you, you lose those best minds. I mean, to go back to your question, Whiskey, um, would you be willing to sacrifice personal freedom uh, for universal strategy? Uh, it depends on the it depends on the strategy. Like if it's World War Three, yeah, sure. But if it's for you know the the next, if if it's for uh, going towards um, uh, a cleaner environment, no, not necessarily. Not necessarily. Oh come on, double plus good. You shake your head at me. I see you doing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think Dr. Green, maybe go back, maybe elaborate on efficiency. Working hard is rewarded. Working efficiently is not. Um, maybe talk about that. Well, I'm not suggesting that you'll get an extra 200 grams of meat this week because you worked extra hard, you know, they're your leader. But, uh, you know, the idea being that it's not just how much you output, because a lot of people argue that, you know, being super efficient or highly productive is not necessarily the key to happiness in life or the key of fulfilled life. But it's figuring out how to get your workforce to basically do the best with what it has and the time it's got. And it has been noted through many analyses that in this country, we lack often the tools that will enable us. And we also have other challenges too. Like, you know, we have to do everything twice in two official languages. That sucks a lot of resource up, for better or for worse. You know, and people could argue whether it's worth the investment to go half and half on a country that is split 1090. But, you know, we do because that's the, that's the official policy of the country. And as a result, though, so when you do everything twice, well, then you're only doing really half as much a lot of times in whatever it is that you work on that requires it to be done twice, right? And it's yeah, not as seamless. And yes, you know. Is that really the so key? You ask, like, I, 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 I think, I think you're drawing some, some strong example. One at a time, gentlemen, one at a time. Just one example. Yeah. You know, it's it's an example of where, you know, like we have all these things we do. This arbitrarily sucks, sucks the efficiency or sucks productivity out uh, in, a, in a, you know, in an effort to try and get the most out of what we've got. And again, too, like we suffer geography because we're huge. We have a tiny population. We are trapped in a northern latitude where a good chunk of the country is not easily accessible or is very expensive to get into and usually is not a place that most people like to stay. It's not a coincidence that everybody lives within 60 kilometers of the American border in this country. You know, that's not accidental. It's because it's better to live down here. It's warmer. You know? And also, too, like you said, the constant influence, external influences, right? Like, where's, where's my Netflix? Where's the Canadian version of Netflix? I don't care. I like the American one, right? Yeah. So that means I'm not producing my own. I, and there's no money for me to produce my own anyway. So, you know, so all of this, all of this saps your ability, right? So when you say, well, you know, we'll stick infrastructure in place in the next five, 10 years, not in this country, not when you, in a 10 year cycle, you have as many as potentially three or four federal elections, you know, three or four federal budgets, possible changes of government, uh, doing things twice, uh, you know, in more than one language. These are all additional, you know, burdens and hooks and obstacles and challenges. So your opportunities become much more exacerbated. I would say that, you know, again, you still don't capitalize on the opportunity. I mean, I see there's hurdles and, and there's always an element of realism. Um, but do you, do you feel as you mean you're maybe overstated a little bit? Like you always say, well, we're doing things twice in both official languages. But really, it's kind of like 90% you're going to get, you're going to get, you're going to polish in one language because you're not an official translator. And then you, you basically fire over a translator to take over the last 10%. So is it really, you know, a, a twofer um, in many respects? Um, 
I mean, I, 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 on my side, I work 75 to 80 hours a week. So I, I, I don't know um, if, if my productivity is a little low and I should do more. I'd like to know where I could fit it in. Maybe um, you're just not being efficient enough. <laughs> and that's the other question. Um, just to say that we're not capitalized, we're not, we're not investing. Like I didn't say you did on the words, but I would say a lot of stuff in a lot of investments are there. Like I just feel people not using them correctly. When I talk to some of my employees, do you know you could do this with the software? Um, I, I think part of it is maybe our culture is is, is that we wait. A lot of people wait for things to give be given to them so they can that's, interpret. That's another where, problem. But where does that culture? Yeah, but where does that culture come from? Right? It's, is it a generational? I, I think it's like, part of the generational thing because you know the Twitter feed pops in. There's not a like, hey, if, would you like to see more on blah? Um, the, the immediacy with which information is available to people, like yes, absolutely. That's and that's yeah. that transcends boundaries. That transcends borders uh between countries like that's a that's a problem of the west predominantly but it's it's felt everywhere it's it's felt in any first world or like any developed country you feel it and the other dynamic is is what about the commoditization of information that allows productivity or allows understanding you know we talk about academic journals and and they there's always this big fee for service but then you say they're a business too like I think there's some. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's some other Which dynamics there. Yeah, because if you go into places like so, for example, in the UK, um, they have something called open access, and their policy now is that if taxpayer dollars are funding the grants, which basically enable the research, then the public should have the right to get access to the results of that research for free. So journals are not allowed really to charge for their publication because you're, you've already paid for it. You've paid for it with your taxes in order to get access to the knowledge that is being developed as a result of your tax money. So interestingly enough, some journal companies uh, are still charging for their journals, like they've charged libraries or institutions, or they'll charge the author to pay to get published. But of course, like you said, in the commoditization of information where there's a million publishers out there and I can... I can get published in any journal. I just have to find one that'll, you know, and it that takes about 10 take seconds me. to find somebody yeah. that will take your money and don't really care about the quality of what you're publishing, uh, but they'll take your grant money. And so the issue becomes the quality. I mean, in, in the old days, it used to be easy to tell about the quality of something. Somebody handed you a rag of the newspaper and handed you an academic scholarly journal from Harvard. You automatically weighed the value of the knowledge on one over the other, right? Mm-hmm. But on the internet, it all looks the same. It's really hard to distinguish which of is really value added, which is something that just got pumped out by some robot or some uh, troll farm, you know, in, in a secret. So it becomes so that information now has two different sets of values, right? So this is the challenge, and and again, like we we don't have access. Like <clears throat> if I was to do a project on an American subject, it'd be very easy for me to find most of the information I needed just online because it's 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 very available. They push information out to their public, whereas even in a place like Canada, you have to pull it all the time. And most of it is not even easily accessible. You have to apply for it. You have to fight the government for it with an access to information request. You are waiting uh, huge amounts of time. Uh, a lot of academics in, the, in Canada are being, uh, dis- you know, are becoming discouraged because it can take five to ten years to publish a piece of work that would take you maybe two years in the United States or United Kingdom to publish. It's just well, think because, about again, it's, what, it's Yeah. Well, think like even just you have for an access to information request, you're also competing with all the idiots and morons out there who are putting in access to information requests for something that oh, yeah. is, yeah, like completely asinine. 
And let's face it, Yasher, it says that, uh, you know, it says that, you know, you have to, you, know, you have to, you have to respond to an ATIP within 30 days. They, they do. They respond within 30 days to tell you they need another 90 days. And then they tell you 90 days later, they need another 120 days. So sure. <laughs> you know, so, it, you know, You'd be hard. Like if I request a document in Canada that was, say, published a government document that was produced, say, in 1955, so 60, 70 years ago, whatever, right? It is still under what's called Access Code 32, restricted by law. Like, what could possibly be in that document that requires it to still be restricted? It's restricted because nobody's either requested it or it's never been processed and vetted, and there's no money and there's no there's no way to vet the documents and put them out on a on a public space where they can be accessed freely. Because we we just don't have the resources. It takes a lot of time and money and, and people to do all that stuff. And we're so far behind. <laughs> like we're, we're really mm. never going to catch up. It just takes forever. Whereas if I go to the United States, they have laws like, for example, it must be published after 50 years, which is why there's always a scramble in places like the NRO and the CIA to scrub all their documents because they run out of time. Right. And they make sure that they get them scrubbed and they get them put out there. Right. So if I want to know about, you know, CIA secret programs in the 50s or 60s, it's all on the internet. It's very easy to get. They actually have their own history offices that that will turn the stuff out for you, so you can get at it easily. But it is the wild. ability to get at information in Canada is very hard. Very hard. Uh, I know a lot of academic colleagues that suffer greatly trying to get at the information that is so easily obtainable elsewhere. That's a whole other discussion tangent that I could take us in, but I I won't because I don't want to well, waste your guys' time on that because it goes deep into like the conspiracy theory territory, and that's not good for anyone. <laughs> no, no I, don't 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 put a conspiracy uh, or an aptitude uh, description will suffice. Yeah. I left my tinfoil hat upstairs. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I'll, I'll tell you, I, I can honestly say that the, the stuff coming out of Library Archive Canada will change very shortly. Uh, there's some new new, new practice. Yeah, new practices. I mean, so. they have to could only be an excuse for so long, but there's there's some uh, new programs coming online that will probably greatly facilitate. Because before, what was happening is people doing the work were churning out and modernizing faster than the guys in the, in the Library Archives Canada. So you're talking about transfer of information, like it was very difficult. And um, so, so there's some quite a few departments now that will be standing up uh, automated transfer of records. So you'll start seeing expedited transfers of things. I've been warped by the rain, driven by the snow. I'm drunk and dirty, don't you know? And I'm still willing. And I was out on the road. Late at night, I seen my pretty Alice in every headlight. Alright, the tracker you're hearing is the 1972 hit Willin' by Little Feet. Some of you may know the Linda Ronstadt version. I remember seeing this in an extended scene in the James Cameron movie, The Abyss. I thought it was appropriate to put something a little more uplifting that related back to our discussion on Canadian truckers. Let's give this one a little bit of volume. Give me weed, white sand, wine, and you show me a sign. I'll be willing to be moving. Ah, that's good stuff. Okay. So whether or not we address the concerns laid out in the previous episode, or even at the beginning of this one, I'll leave that up to you. At the end of the day, all I can say is always keep the lines of communication open. Find a channel, and just keep talking. They say talk is cheap, 
but I'll be damned if it isn't rewarding. Don't forget to like and subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your weekly dose of whiskey and rocks. And I'd also like to thank Dr. Green for joining us as well. You can help us out even more if you spread the word and share us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. We are at Whiskey and Rocks 1. All links are in the description. Thanks again for listening and stay tuned for more 320 Club. Baked by the sun every time I go to Mexico And I'm still And I've been from Tucson to Tucum, Gary The Hatcher Peter Jones Sand. And you show me a sign